You're listening to Ink Studs on CITR 101.9 FM. My guest this week is Ivan Brunetti. Uh, this will be Ivan's third time on the show, I'm pleased to say. Um, I'm a big fan of Ivan's work. And even before uh, Ivan was on, uh, Colin Upton and I did a very stumbling and not worth listening to uh, discussion um, about how much we liked Schizo uh, Issue 4. Um, but as I said, it was early in the Ink Studs days. and I cringe that they still exist, and I did that. <laughs> I'm sure we all have our uh, our early work we wish to uh, disacknowledge. Um, um, yes, I have a lot of a lot of it, even current work. <laughs> I, <can disacknowledge laughs> so. I, I think I remember. Um, I did hear that at some point. What you're referring to, um, and I don't know if I mean if you have a, a file somewhere on the internet that can be downloaded, but I seem to remember hearing that. It's it's still there. I'm like one of those people where I know it's not good, but I'm terrible at self-editing. Oh, well, it was fine. <laughs> <laughs> I'm flattered that you uh, took the time to uh, analyze what I do. So, yeah, well, it's it still um, kind of stands out for me as a pretty important comic work, and uh, and I'm excited. Um, we should mention one of the reasons Ivan's on today is because of Ivan's new book. Um, aesthetics, a memoir, um, which is kind of a look at your childhood, work you made as a child, and work you made in present, um, and it's kind of an interesting dichotomy between, I guess there's kind of three parts in my head to it. There's like the present work, the childhood work, and then the work you're surrounded by if that makes sense. Yeah, that's pretty much, that pretty much covers it. It's sort of um, all the things that shape me and then the result of those things. And that, you know, includes my childhood drawings and all the um, things I collect and just, um, it's kind of like the whole book's a visual essay. And I mean, that's at least how I thought of it. And um, I'm hoping that the, um, the collections kind of illuminate some of the drawings and vice versa because at some point I wasn't sure if I was collecting things that um, are sort of like what I do or if what I do is because of the things I collect. It started to sort of become this cycle where I, I can't tell what's influencing what anymore. I was thinking like the collecting was definitely one of the first things that popped in my, in my mind looking through this book and one of the things I was thinking about because I myself am a horrible collector. I collect way too much stuff. I still buy CDs. Um, you know, I've got tons of books. Um, but part of that is the idea of how, um, when you look at a collection, a personal collection, how that kind of forms a certain type of biography. Um, and I'm curious about how, when you choose what to present yourself and who you are with your collection. Oh, um, like if I thought of it that way, you mean? Um, yeah. Definitely, I thought it was part of the whole thing being kind of an autobiography. It was um, that was just kind of an indirect way of of showing it. At the same time, I didn't want it to make it 
Um, I wanted to leave a little mystery there, like sort of to surprise myself a little bit when I flip through the book, because um, it's not like you see one-to-one correlations with everything. So I was pretty conscious of kind of planting seeds in the reader's head, and then kind of maybe 50 pages later, there's something that reminds you of something you saw before, and then, you, you know, if you keep going, there might be something that reminded you of the other thing, or sometimes something might presage something. Um, so you're kind of sort of jumping around in my head a little bit, um, which is kind of how I, I put it together. So just trying to give the reader maybe a little bit of the same experience of what it's like to be me or something. <laughs> so that's, maybe that has the book has that in common with everything else I've done. Well, it's it feels like an important part to it is, is kind of creative process. Um, yes. And how that yeah. work plays off creatively, like for yourself, um, kind of what you surround yourself in affects what you do. Yeah, this book definitely came out of um, teaching. I kind of thought of it as a companion piece to the cartooning book I did for Yale and, and also the um, anthologies that I edited for Yale University. Um, so I thought of this as kind of connected to those projects, especially the cartooning book. It's just like another aspect of my teaching because um, I, I do try to encourage students to um, um, start collecting things. I mean, sometimes, sometimes that's been an assignment where they have to collect things and um, and then kind of arrange them or fi- find a, a way to put them together, a topology or um, some some kind of order to put them in. And it's just kind of an exercise in gaining insight into yourself. And I think it's useful. It was useful for me to do it, I guess. Um, it helped me figure out um, my own sense of aesthetics or what I, what I like and why. It also kind of, I mean, one of my... Uh, implicit themes in the book is uh, what, whatever it is that shaped you is okay. You should you should be able to just kind of embrace all of it. I mean, you can start to question it once you gather all the things you've collected. Um, I think when you start to um, examine them more closely, you start to kind of see themes and um, continuities, and then you also notice you know things that are discontinuous. So it's, I think, a matter of, like, this constant focusing and refocusing, and sometimes you go off on these other tangents. But I do think what you what you surround yourself with is always going to influence what you're making. And I also think that you could start from any point. So, I mean, in my case, I was always surrounded by this sort of cartoon stuff. And, uh, that, you know, admittedly can be a limitation. <laughs> so... Uh, but at the same time, that's what got me interested in looking at things. So it also led me to explore other stuff. So it was Im- important to me. And I think everyone has something like that that um, they felt connected to in, in childhood. And that does inform who we are. I mean, that doesn't mean that I think we should you know, stop there and not develop from childhood, but simply acknowledge that... Um, these sort of visual things around us really do shape a lot of who we are. You kind of spend your whole life basically trying to figure that out and maybe recreate some of those things that you felt looking at certain things, whatever they might be. It doesn't have to be cartoons. I mean, in my case, it was cartoons and toys, but they could be anything. I feel like some of the toys, um, they predate your own childhood, though, too. Oh, um, well, the stuff that's in the book, you mean? Yeah. Oh, yeah, actually, I mean, the, those aren't um, most of, just about everything in there is not from my actual childhood. I had very, 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 very few toys, almost no, I mean, I can only remember one toy, really. <laughs> in the, um, I must have had a couple of other toys, but I can only remember this one particular teddy bear. Um, but, yeah, there are toys that I'm collecting now, um, so it's not... You know, like here's the stuff I've had since I was a kid. I, I, maybe it's a, I mean, maybe this desire to collect comes from, you know, trying to get all this stuff that I couldn't have when I was a kid. I don't know. I mean, I'm still trying to figure out what it's all about. Definitely, it's to, you know, fill in some sort of emotional gap, or some sort of deficiency in my character. I guess. I, you know, I find myself buying stuff 
because it's something I've always wanted, not necessarily that I need it, but there's still like you see that object when you're a kid and you couldn't have it for whatever reason and then eventually you find it and you obviously don't need it, but you still want it. Right. <laughs> I, I think it's, uh, for me, collect, I mean, there's different types. I think there's different types of collectors. I'm the kind of person that doesn't know what they want until they see it. Like, I don't know what it is that I'm looking for until I see something. And then for some reason, I feel a, a kinship with that thing. And I don't know what that's about either. But definitely some toys feel more alive than other ones. You know, because I can walk past, you know, 500, whatever, toys of whatever kind, and most of them are just, I mean, they're they're fine, and, but there's going to be one that kind of grabs me, and I don't know what it's about, but something about it tells, you know, I just know, like, that's the one I, that's the one I want. I'm not just want, but I must have that, you know, like, <laughs> I don't know what that's about, that one particular one feels alive, and the other 499 just feel like toys. Have you ever talked to uh, Kim Deitch and his wife Pam about their cat toy collecting? Um, no, not specifically. I mean, I know they have, and he's drawn it, and I know they, um, they have a collection of it, but I've never actually gotten a chance to talk about that. It, it seems Wait, like... there's some... Uh, you were, I didn't mean to interrupt, so... No, no, I was just curious. I'm saying. Because, I mean, both... I mean, it's it's interesting to see what people and people like have these like interesting fascinations and I could see some crossover between between you guys. Um, one of the things you collect a lot of is uh, Pinocchio toys you mentioned, and I'm, that's a really interesting. Yeah, and I I have more that are not in the book. Of course, I found some good ones after the photography was done. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, and I like the ones that. Um, don't look like any of the other ones, so I'm always looking for, like, an odd one. Something, I mean, I've always been interested in that, like, at what point is something not what it's supposed to be, because um, there's some idea of what Pinocchio is in our heads, and um, I guess you can stray pretty far, um, but still remain within the realm of Pinocchio dumb, Pinocchio hood, <laughs> Pinocchio ossitude. <laughs> Um, but at some point, like, if something goes a little too far, it's no longer that thing. And I'm, I'm kind of interested how far you can bend it. I mean, that has a lot to do with um, cartooning, I think, and, like, sort of creating characters. And, you know, I mean, even thinking of, um, well, I just saw the Dan, um, Dan Klaus show here in Chicago at the uh, Museum of Contemporary Art and, like, the Wilson pages where, you know, you have all these different Wilsons, but it's it's still Wilson. And it's, it's, that's always been an interesting notion to me, I mean, because uh, that applies to our lives as well. Like, you know, you're always you, but you didn't look the same year to year. And, of course, what I look like at one year old and 15 years old and 40 years old is so different. But somehow there's a continuity there that it's kind of, I think, cartooning kind of taps into that weird aspect of life where there's this continuous <laughs> thing that, you know, is you even though on the surface it's very different, you know, depending on when you look at it. Were there some stylistic shifts in that page, too, or was it just age? I can't remember. It's been a while since I've read Wilson. Oh, it's all, yeah, it's style, right, but that's what I'm saying. Uh, it's yeah. interesting. So I think cartooning taps into that because um, we look different from age to age, mm -hmm. but we still know it's us know who we are and you can do that with a cartoon character where you know they can look very i mean or even charlie brown is another great example like he kind of evolves but you always know it's charlie brown but it really when you think about it it's kind of strange that you know a 1951 charlie brown and a you know 1997 charlie brown are still charlie brown yeah because they, they look pretty different from each other you kind of see the innocence in the ni 1951 one, which you don't see as yeah. much in the, the latter design day one. Kinda, the design and the quality of the drawing changes as well, and the shape of his head isn't quite the same, but there's there's something there that's consistent where we always read it as Charlie Brown. And I guess, you know, Pinocchio's a little more vague um, as far as that goes. There's a little more creative license there, but so I'm kind of interested in seeing these different interpretations and it, you know that they still read as Pinocchio. Mm -hmm. Um, 
couple of things you touched on there. One I was thinking about um, in reference to your work and kind of going through this book and looking at how you do things is kind of the idea of images and how images work. And particularly, um, you kind of summed a little bit with this Charlie Brown part, um, is how images kind of work as symbols. And with cartoon images especially, you can kind of get use these characters, these images, to create these symbols and these ideas. Um, and I really feel like it's something that's coming really prominent in your work as you like dial back how many line strokes you're doing. Yeah, that has a lot to do with my eyes getting worse and worse. So I've had to sort of adjust my drawing. and um, So, I mean, I think that's where it started. Like I was um, also kind of like trying to get out of certain um, creative blocks and um, just trying to start drawing something. And it was, you know, at one point um, it just became interesting to me that um, I started doing these doodles that um, still worked um, because it wasn't always that way. Like when it took a while, like a, a lot of practice of just kind of doing the spontaneous drawing to get to a point where um, the doodles could kind of work as cartoons or they would read, or there was some some consistency there. So um, that, and, and then I got interested in kind of making the final work look like, you know, what I was doing when I was doodling and trying to see if I could pare everything down to the essential. And I, I don't know, maybe part of me thought that I could finally become a little bit more prolific if I went in that direction, but I think I became less prolific because then I got obsessed with shaving everything away and um, I just always find a way to make everything complicated so I can have more and more excuses <laughs> for not getting any drawing done. One of the interesting things you did with that is the, the pennant scroll and maybe you oh, can yeah, tell yeah. folks about that. That was really I looked at that in a really interesting kind of powerful way of doing just that singular image. Yeah, just um, when I was a kid, I really, I kind of liked when we had these punishments where you had to write a sentence over and over again, um, probably because I had some sort of OCD, so it didn't really feel like a punishment, <laughs> you know, because I, sort of, I sort of enjoyed, um, there's, you get into this meditative state where you, you don't even, you're not really aware almost of what you're writing anymore, it just becomes this physical act and you, you get in this weird zone. And I kind of like that feeling because you'd sort of trance out. But I, also, at, at the end of it, you'd see um, all the stuff that was happening to your writing that you weren't really conscious of, and it would sort of kind of form these waves, um, you know, start to go off in one direction or slant one way, and then you're trying to sort of correct it, but you're not really doing it consciously. It's sort of like this, I mean, it is like kind of a meditative thing. And um, so I just wanted to kind of do something to get um, that feeling again, and um, I just I don't know I don't know why I bought a scroll. I think I was going to use it in a class, um, in one of, one of my classes to do like an exercise or something. And then um, I don't know. I just got frustrated, or um, I just sort of grabbed it and decided to do this project. And um, it sort of happened again. <laughs> it just <laughs> becomes like this punishment. But um, I was. I mean, I was going very fast. I, I might try to redo it going very, very slowly um, and doing a more complex drawing than just that doodle. Um, I think there's more to explore with that. And I kind of liked um, having that big space. I also realized that um, that's one of the frustrating things with uh, with comics. It's, uh, for me anyway, like sometimes I think it helps me to have a big space where I can mess up. Um, I was also thinking I wanted to try to draw every painting that I remember like on a scroll and just keep it going like just do it from memory without looking it up and that was another project but I haven't done that one yet it's hard to find space for me to where I can lay, lay out the scrolls so um, too much collection yeah. <laughs> right <laughs> um, I, I found some uh, this empty classroom that um, I used for the first one then I got kicked out of it because it was um, someone was going to use it but um, I kind of like, yeah, pinning something up and having a really big wall space, so. You talk in the book about um, when you're a, a child, and I think it was when you were coming to America and you're around all these other Italian families, 
and they all had these versions of uh, Da Vinci's The Last Supper. Yes. And I was thinking about that. that. <laughs> yeah, and I was thinking about that when you're talking about the kind of reinterpreting paintings. Um, and it, it, it yeah, was. Yeah, I'm interested in that. Yeah. It was something that really I, struck out to me. I actually remember that I I had a paint by number of that. I mean, it's been lost. I don't know what happened to it. But I remember trying to do that as a paint by number myself. But like everybody had different versions of it that weren't necessarily paintings. You know, sometimes they were, I can't even describe what they were made out of it, but it wasn't necessarily paintings either. So people like would make that image in different media, different mediums. But it was interesting to me, you know, watching this thing kind of mutate from person to person, like this reinterpretation. It was kind of like, you know, like a translation of it. Probably see I, mean, I don't know what, much, what else to say about it. <laughs> it, was just, it was interesting, but I, I, um, I've been trying to find uh, ways to incorporate that into what I'm doing to sort of try to figure out why it, why it's even interesting to me because I don't even know why it's interesting. It, I mean, part part of the thing that's interesting to me is just how um, the painting itself kind of holds like a some power of symbolism. Um, for folks and it's just it's not necessarily about the painting itself but the ideas in the painting of like this moment I think that's part yeah I mean that's definitely part of it I think I'm interested in the in uh, just the, you know any kind of art is sort of like a map in some way I mean I think the I mean the genius of that painting is in, in the composition and, and the way it's ordered and I think the reason it can work, even though it gets translated and even though errors get introduced with each translation, um, it's still starting from some sort of sense of order. Um, I mean, and I think, you know, any art form has that underneath it, like some sort of structure. And, it, you know, we sort of, um, we map them out in, in some way. I mean, music, we... we kind of map it out with sound, but it doesn't have to be, it doesn't have to be interpreted that way. You know, you can get a computer to figure out whether something is music or not. It can make different kinds of maps of it. You can make visual maps of it. I mean, there's different interpretations of any kind of phenomenon, I guess. And um, there's there's some sense of order and pattern and repetition in nature. I mean, it, you know, and I think art tries to get at that sense because um, I guess we can you know maybe call that like this sort of cosmic moment when you realize these like the interconnectedness of everything and how complex everything is in nature and so whatever kind of art you're making or music or whatever it might be I, I think it's a way of trying to recapture that or get at that and if you do if you do find a way to get at that I think you create something that has a sense of structure the same way that nature has this sense of structure and so it sort of withstands this kind of reiteration and translation and reinterpretation because at the root of it there's there's some sense of order I think anyway I could be totally wrong it's uh, this hopefully this doesn't seem too kind of non sequitur tangent but like I was thinking about that um, one of the things I thought about when you're talking about like the kind of images come through is um, you know Aphex Twin the electronic music guy from the 90s you know you cut out for a little bit there um, oh sorry I know uh, I didn't hear that last part uh, the before the 90s the Aphex Twin the band or the guy oh yes okay he yeah, did, he did this like the, the Fourier transform of the song and so it turns into his face yes exactly <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I guess because there is some, there's, I mean, there's some kind of mathematical quality to music. I guess that's why those, uh, like, musical geniuses, there's like, a, you know, whatever connection to, they're often the kind of mathematical geniuses as well. So, I mean, there's there's something there that that connects the two. I like the idea of like how he's drawing the music there. Yeah, like he's yeah. creating an image of the music. Not that that image is very listenable, but... Um. 
I can't. I mean, I can't read music or anything, but I, I believe, like, you, um, well, definitely in Bach's music, there's a at times like uh, there's sort of these visual visual patterns going on, and I think in, in Beethoven as well, sometimes there were they're like very conscious things where you might even have mirror structures of the notes, like visual mirrors, and trying to um, maybe like again, it's just like exploring different ways of like what what is this thing music and what is structure and there's definitely some connection to like mathematical ideas and um, visual mapping and all this other stuff or maybe that's just our way of trying to understand it I don't know trying to find something to pull out of it yeah and I mean I'm sure there's artists that uh, have a, a completely opposite view viewpoint with what I'm saying that we're there may be more em- embracing the chaotic element of it all and I I guess I'm one of those people that's always trying to find order. Mm-hmm. Maybe maybe you can divide people up into it's sort of like the Beatles and Stones question. <laughs> maybe Brian Chippendale would be more into the uh, chaotic sounding. <laughs> yeah, maybe. I mean, you know, it's weird. Sometimes people surprise you. You, you assume something, and then because um, he actually keeps um, the beat very well, even though it's kind of goes all all over. And but he's a pretty tight drummer. So I don't know. Like you might assume, like it's chaotic, but maybe he's not thinking of it that way. And there, there is structure there. Mm-hmm. Even in his comics, actually thinking about it, there, there's a lot of beats. Um, yeah, yeah. But I mean, there's it's it's a structure that flows. It's flows intensely. I spent a day reading his stuff in preparation for an interview, and I kind of my brain was melting by the end of it. <laughs> Well, he definitely likes a sort of order, like an orderly grid. I mean, he plays with it, and it's um, what goes on in there. But like, he likes to start with a very orderly grid. It's almost like you know the musical, uh, the staff lines or whatever, kind of having like a structure underneath it all. I was thinking about the grid specifically with your work, um, because you seem to be really embracing it more and more as time goes on. Um, obviously, the, anyone who's read. Any of the early issues of Schizo, there's, I think it's issue two where it just goes all over the place to the point where it's just all word balloons. Um, but then looking... My psyche was also <laughs> <laughs> going through a similar transformation at that time, so, or a transmogrification, I don't know. Looking at, at the grid format you're using now, um, kind of tell me about how you've embraced that. Um, yeah, you know, it's a good question. I, I think it was, again, it's sort of born out of, like, a frustration. Like, I have these blocks where I just feel like, what's the point of doing anything? And um, I'm always putting this pressure on myself to try to do something different every time, and then I end up pretty much doing the same thing every time anyway. But um, I think the, the grid, it was sort of a, like having that sort of very even grid. It was a way of just removing that question of how to get started because it's already there you know like sort of i would take a sheet of paper and just divide it up into the squares and um and then just start to see what might happen from panel to panel from square to square and it sort of removed the question of like what kind of grid should i make or what kind of grid should i use and i mean i think ultimately the grid has to serve whatever grid you use even if it's a very loose grid of panels or even, you know, quite freeform. I mean, that just simply has to serve the, the narrative. Um, and, you know, you kind of, as you draw, you kind of figure out what the um, the structure of it's going to be, um, especially, like, if it starts to get more um, experimental. But I, t- I tend to think the that stuff that's very experimental is is that way because it's it's serving the narrative. You know, you need to have um, different size panels and different shape panels, or maybe like com- a complete breakdown of the panel structure that has to fit in. It has to reflect and serve the the narrative. Um, and my problem is, I often think, um, kind of in the wrong. I mean, I was thinking about it in the wrong way sometimes uh, where um, I wanted to create like an interesting looking page and then sort of fit the story in there. When I think back to the 
my early days of cartooning, I think I was trying to sort of like flow the story into these kinds of uh, irregular structures, and they sometimes work and sometimes don't work very well. Um, but at some point, I, I think it all just got overwhelming, so the easiest thing to do was to just start with a grid and just see if I could sketch out a story. And then what happens is you get to certain points and you realize, you know, you have to break from the grid, and that's because of what, whatever's going on in the narrative. Um, yeah, and sometimes it's also um, I make certain rules for myself. When I can't get started, I just I actually start making a lot of rules um, because it, it takes away the, the, uh, the worrying and the overthinking, and you're just sort of trying to follow the rules. And at some point, you have to break them because it's inevitable. Um, when you start to you start to realize at some point that the rule is getting in the way of the narrative, and that's when you know you have to depart from whatever you know uh, restraint or constraint that you've given yourself. But I think the constraints are helpful when you when you're starting because it it removes some of this like overthinking that I'm prone to, and you're you're just sort of trying to improvise something within these strictures. There's one particular strip that you're making me think of um, because it, it, it's one of my favorites of yours is your Mondrian strip in Schizo 4. And, and it's um, it's interesting how you kind of piece it together. And I don't know how reflective it is of an actual Mondrian piece. Um, it's, it's, by an the, exact, by the uh, it's an exact copy of an early, of an, one of the early pieces that he did that kind of look like you know the classic Mondrian paintings and that that's one of the earlier ones where he kind of figured it out but he was still using um, gray eventually he got rid of the gray I think and it was just red yellow blue mm -hmm. and black and white but in, in that one he was still using uh, this kind of very dark gray so it's actually I can't remember the the title it's you know it's a number composition number I can't remember which one it is now um, but what I did, that's, um, in that one I actually yeah, tried to make the story fit into the um, the structure of one of his paintings. And what I, I mean, in that particular story there's sort of these little sequences, so I had um, these short, you know, sometimes they were one panel or two or three or four kind of little snippets. And um, it's not clear sometimes where you're supposed to go in, in terms of where your eye is supposed to go in that, in that um, particular strip, and that is reflective of his paintings, too, where there's a rhythm to them, and you can kind of explore them in different ways. So I just thought of those as um, turning that into a comic. I just kind of tried to fit short sequences that were in, like, little chunks, and then you're, you could decide to go in different directions at certain points. And it's also kind of like his mind wandering as well because there's sort of all these um, sometimes contradictory ideas going on in there. I thought it was interesting that he was trying to make this very rational art, but that um, basically he was a mystic. I mean, he was he belonged to a, I forget what they're called, a theosophist. Um, he was part of like this mystic society. Like <laughs> a Rosencrucian type thing? or No, it's... Um, Oh like God! Golden I'm trying to think there was, it wasn't quite so sinister. <laughs> there were like a, there were like a group of, um, I think they were called the Theosophists, and he was part of that group. And they were, you know, kind of into these mystical ideas that are kind of quasi-Eastern um, philosophies, basically. Um, and the, it, it was, I mean, it was just interesting to me that he was um, trying to make this very rational, abstract, and kind of impersonal art where, um, like, you wouldn't even know anymore, like, who made it. It was just, like, he was trying to get at this purity where, like, almost he didn't exist anymore, and it was just the painting, and it was the order and the rhythm, um, the sense of movement, etc. Trying to, again, maybe getting at this idea of structure and rhythm and pattern. Um, but it's it's funny because... I mean, he's one of the most identifiable painters <laughs> yeah. there is. You know, it's sort of like the second you see, you know, red, yellow, blue squares, you just automatically think Mondrian, and that was not what he was after. He was trying to sort of disappear into the work. Anyway, I was fascinated by, you know, the fact that everything he was trying to do, 
he didn't actually achieve, but despite that, you know, people like his work, but it's not exactly for the reasons that he was trying to get people to, <laughs> to look at it or like it. And I thought that was um, something I could relate to. Like maybe, maybe sometimes artists don't see their work in the clearest way. Um, I was thinking with the grid, um, you talked a little bit about teaching, and um, Frank Santoro posted something today, um, which is a really neat phrase, because phrase, if you're familiar with Frank's work, Frank is kind of obsessed with the grid to an unruly degree. Um, and he said, you got to learn the scales before playing Coltrane. Um, and I wonder for yourself, when you're teaching your students, do you kind of institute these these rules of like kind of ways of starting out? Yeah, I guess in my own way, it's probably not. Um, I mean, I've never taken his. I was actually considering taking his class <laughs> this summer, <laughs> but I don't know. That probably weird him out or something. But I thought it'd be interesting because um, I, I like to see how other people teach. Because I have no idea what I'm doing. I just kind of improvise something every class, you know. Um, but yeah, I, I do kind of um, the the cartooning class that I turned into the book cartooning is structured a very specific way where it's kind of like um, learning things incrementally, and um, I mean I, I've, I've I've had to modify it um, a little bit. Um, I, I I sort of change things up every semester just to keep myself interested and surprised, and um, I also have to react to the work the students are creating as well. Sometimes they're more advanced in certain areas and they're not in others. So, you know, I use the, the cartooning book kind of as a basic guideline and then I modify it as I need to, depending on the, the students I have. But, you know, that does have kind of um, a philosophy of it that's similar to what you're describing with um, Frank Santoro's, where it's, you, you kind of have to learn things incrementally in a certain order and then you can and then you can really experiment, you know, because you understand what the what you're doing when you're experimenting. You you have a sense of um, why some of the rules developed. You know, I mean, it's not like rules are absolute, but they're they're good as starting points. They're good as guideposts. And um, what you start to realize is, um, you know, at some point you you have to break these rules, um, and that's fine. It, but it's good to kind of understand why they developed or, or why certain habits developed or um, certain narrative structures have evolved. You know, certain things tend to work better, but that doesn't mean they're absolute and can't be broken. So, you know, you, you have to kind of try to balance it out a little bit. Because um, I like to be surprised. You know, I, I definitely don't... I would hate a class where... Um, all the work looks the same, or the worst would be is when the work looks like the teacher's work. Mm -hmm. um, that's the worst, I think, because then you're not teaching the students. You're just instructing them on how to do something a very specific way. And for me, um, the pleasure is at the end of every semester when I look at the final project and everybody's doing something very different, but everybody has a much better understanding of how to structure a narrative than they did you know, in the first week. And you can really tell, and even the students can tell, like something happened in 15 weeks, like they actually learned how to make comics. Um, but they've all, I, I try to push everybody to kind of go in their own direction as well. So, um, you know, it's it's not to get stuck in the rules. They're, it's good to learn certain rules, and it's good to understand that um, you can always break a rule, too. Now, how many students do you tend to have uh, a semester? Um, the cartooning classes um, and like graphic novel classes, 18 students, and it's pretty much full. Um, in the past, it would sometimes be over full, um, but you know, it's generally 17 or 18 students. Now, I've tried to um, add more sections of some of the classes so that um, we don't have the overcrowding that there used to be. So generally, yeah, it'll be 17 or 18 students per semester for 15 weeks. 
So that really and then I, I work with some of them outside of class quite a bit, like the ones that are actually really good and want to be cartoonists. I spend a lot of time outside of class kind of mentoring them. And even after they're finished with school, I mean, I've become friends with a lot of the students, but I'll, I'll just say it, like the ones that are better at cartooning, I, um, I work hard at it. Um, they're know, more devoted. They're more devoted, so I... I um, it's worth it's worth it to me to I'm actually interested in their work like I'm fascinated to see what they're making and so I like spending time with them now that's um, you know a minority of students in my classes and I and I don't teach just um comics that's uh, I mean I, I don't know how many different classes I've taught in the last five years I think I've taught seven or eight different ones and a lot of them are illustration and I teach like history of illustration, editorial illustration. I've taught, you know, drawing one. I've taught um, it's like an introductory design class. Um, I've taught like portfolio, professional portfolio classes. Um, it sort of changes every semester. <laughs> so uh-huh. um, some of some of the um, more like specific, like a apply. There's a class called applied drawing that I've taught. That's more. Um, about perspective and um, technical drawing and things like that. So, so cartooning. Um, I, I actually took a little bit of a break f- from it, and I wanted to bring some new teachers to the school as well. So um, I kind of worked to get some adjunct faculty just to change it up for a bit and help some people get experience teaching. So I, I took a little bit of a break from teaching comics for a semester, but next year I'll. Um, I'm going to try to teach as much as I can with comics and graphic novels. I do know uh, folks that teach comics classes that use your book in the class in Vancouver. Yeah, I've gotten emails from people flattering. Um, I want to tell them, like, feel free to (laughs) throw anything out the window that doesn't work because I change it up all the time. In fact, right after I did the first version of that book, that was part of the comic art magazine, Mm -hmm. um, I almost like rebelled against myself and decided like I'm not going to use this book at all, and um, just kind of threw it out the window. Like after I spent years writing and <laughs> putting it together, and I just thought like well, I'll just do something different. I actually because uh, I had um, two different comics-related classes, I wanted to make them as different as possible. So I I kind of started violating some of the rules of the cart in the cartooning book and trying to trying to maybe get at things in a, from a different direction so I, I might I might someday try to write all that stuff down um, because that started to evolve into like um, a different take on teaching the same subject and for some students um, certain things work better you know uh, certain lessons seem to get through them better than in what I have in that cartooning book and I thought maybe I should do like a companion that is very different, where it's almost <laughs> like arguing with the first book. Because um, uh, I tend to change things up for myself all the time. I, I really hate getting stuck in a certain way of doing things, so every so often I just throw everything out the window. I'm sure like one of these days I'll probably like throw away every single toy that, that is in the aesthetics book. In a, in a way, I kind of felt that like after the book was done. And... Um, it exists in book form. I thought, like, do I really need all this stuff in my house? <laughs> I, don't have any, I don't have anywhere else to put things anymore. I thought about <laughs> just boxing it up and throwing it away or giving it away. And I'm like, you know, it's in a book. I've, I've written about it. Maybe I'm done with it. Didn't you do that with your photos? Like, you collect a lot of photos and then you digitize them all and cleaned house? Oh, um, oh that was my website that mm-hmm. had all the... Um, uh, well, those were those were JPEGs that some of them were some of them I scanned myself, but some were just JPEGs I was collecting from the internet. So I I made like a JPEG archive, and then I don't know what happened. I was going through a bad time, and I just took the whole website down. So I got one person that was sad about it that emailed me. <laughs> what <laughs> happened to the postcards? Because it was all postcards, <laughs> antique yeah. postcards. And I kind of I felt kind of bad. There was one like one other collector out there. <laughs> that was, um, so I gave him all the files, and I you know I said if you ever want to put it 
back together again. You could, you know, do what do what you want with these. You could just it do would a Tumblr be fun now. To, it's what? You could just do Sorry. a Tumblr. Yeah, that's the thing. It's um Yeah, I mean even my even this aesthetics book it's sort of like uh I could just do this as a Tumblr as, as well. <laughs> I mean everything can be a Tumblr now. It's kind of sad. I'm sure people are scanning stuff from the book and putting it on Tumblr and defeats the purpose of putting out a book. Yes and no. I mean, I like Tumblr, but um, mm -hmm. it's kind of depressing sometimes because people are, like, everything's out there. <laughs> you know? it's, I mean, one of the big challenges I have is it decontextualizes things. Yes, yeah, it's... Um, a lot of people just sort of are putting these random, I mean, they're putting them up there randomly, and um, there seems to be no thought to um, how they're, how the images interact with each other. Mm -hmm. um, there's there's some people that try to do more interesting things, like create sets of images, or have maybe surprising juxtapositions from image to image, or tell little stories implicitly with the images, but I think a lot of people are just sort of vomiting everything up. <laughs> it's kind of like, like the poor man's Liechtenstein. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Someone will get mad at me for saying that, I'm sure. <laughs> but I mean, that's kind of how I feel about some of the stuff when you kind of take this image and you take it out of the context of whatever, that's kind of what we're, what he was doing. Um, oh, I agree. <laughs> a big part of the book, we have the photos toys, um, look at the recent work, um, and the other thing is, is the objects that you make, um, and, which are, I love seeing, um, just how you kind of reinterpret your vision, um, in a different way, um, but you also talk about kind of how this is what you're working on when you're going through some serious, uh, times of depression. Oh yeah, like the making a little objects sort of. Um, mm. Yeah, I mean that those were things that most people aren't really going to see, and I thought, well, it might be nice to put them in the book because I did spend quite a bit of time on some of those, and um, I think it helped me get through some bad times, and um, it was something to focus on that was just more physical than drawing, I guess. Um, and a little messier and sloppier, and um, I, I think one of the things I've had trouble accepting about myself is that I'm, I'm kind of a sloppy artist, um, and I think people tend to assume the opposite because the, like the, the final comics that I put out there tend to be very um, rigid, I guess, mm -hmm. to, to put they're it very kindly. Clean. Yeah, they're clean and they're but they're you know they're very kind of rigid and stodgy, and I've um, I tried to be meticulous in my own way, and even in that very simplified style. And to some degree, like um, I, I wonder. I mean, it helps me to to do that at times because it sort of helps me put my life in order and writing the story, and then trying to visually structure it that way feels like it's part of a process of trying to understand something. So it makes sense. But um, but other times, I, I just feel so constrained by that. Um, I mean, generally, I'm not a very organized person, and, I'm, um, you know, I have my my workspace gets messy very, very fast, and I'm wondering if there's some way to bring that into the comics, but I think, um, like, making those paper mache things, which are kind of messy to make, uh, was a way of embracing this other part of what I do, which is, you know, not like those kind of meticulous and fussy comics um, which is one but I guess it's one part of my personality and then the other part of my personality is very impatient and sloppy and messy and um, you know I don't really let that into the comics very often I, I, I try to put sometimes the um, unfin like unfinished strips like in schizo number four mm -hmm. and that was a way to kind of maybe let the reader in on what's underneath the, the comics so they can actually kind of see how they how they come about and the process by which they come about. Um, and it maybe gives a little bit of insight into how disorganized my brain is a little bit. So I think um, making these sort of three-dimensional things is a, 
is a way to let myself work in a slightly more messy way, I guess. I don't know. Because everything, like the my work table, turns into a huge mess when I'm making any of those things. I guess they still come out kind of fussy, but um, it's a much messier process. And I, I, I guess I sort of enjoy that. And, and even making the, the penance scroll was kind of like that. It was a way to get out of this rigidity and to just make these marks very, very fast and to do, you know, a lot of it, like moving my arm around. Because um, it's very easy when you're depressed to just convince yourself that you can't do anything. Like, you know, you can't even get up from the floor. <laughs> you're mm-hmm. staring at the ceiling and, and just convincing yourself to, to move an inch sometimes feels like this very big event, you know, like it's really hard, like you have to steal yourself and it's kind of, I mean, it's ridiculous when you step back from it and, and you're outside of the, outside of that emotional situation, but when when you're going through something like that, I mean, just you're just kind of immobile, I don't know, just describe it, it's like you're, you know, it's like a self-willed paralysis or something, like you're forcing yourself to paralyze yourself. Um, so, you know, making some of these projects are just a way to move my arm, <laughs> put ink on the paper, or, um, you know, take paste and newspaper and, you know, slap it on top of a, a balloon or something like that and just start making a, I, I, I don't want to call it a sculpture, but something like an object, mm-hmm. make a, whatever it is, a little toy for myself. Well, it's, it's great, the idea, like, you don't have an obligation with it. Um, like with the, with your comics, I'm sure no matter what, there's something you're going. Well, someone's going to want to see this, and how are people going to read it? Blah blah blah. You kind of have this more kind of. I'm presuming True. this is really presumptuous yeah, yeah. of me. It's like the the critical viewpoint on on your creativity, and it seems like the objects. It's kind of the opposite, where it's you're just kind of doing this, yeah. and this is kind of like, yeah, sorry. <laughs> so yeah, no, you're right. I mean, it, it was more enjoyable in a way to to make those, and I I didn't even know if I ever wanted to, you know, show anybody those things. But when I was putting the book together, it, it kind of made sense to um, put that stuff in there. I mean, the I spent a long time on this aesthetics book. Just, I edited the text, I'm sure, by fifty percent. I mean, I wrote a lot more, and then I would just condense it and condense it and condense it and there's not a lot of work in there because I didn't create a ton of work, but, um, you know, it is uh, curated. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> I hope it comes off that way. Well, I'm very excited to have it because I've been enjoying um, all those New Yorker covers and, you know, all these other things I see out there. And you know. Oh, yeah, and uh, interestingly, uh, the one, there wasn't, I just did one, I mean, I didn't just do it, it just came out last, uh, two weeks ago, I guess, not last week, but, um, and I wanted, it was an image I wanted to include in the book, but I had to wait till the New Yorker ran it, and um, I drew it two years ago, so it took two years for it to be actually <laughs> in print, um, and I really wanted it in the book, but there was just no way I could include it, because they'd already purchased it, and, um, you know, if I put it in the book, then they wouldn't have uh, run it. <laughs> so, yeah. Um, yeah, so, yeah, I, I, at the time I was making this book, I, I almost thought, like, I'm probably never going to do any more illustrations ever again. That was sort of an idea that was floating in my head. Um, but, of course, uh, that's not going to happen. <laughs> so I got asked to do a couple of things, and... Um, you know, maybe it was good though to kind of put it together in a book because in a, in a way I wanted to make the book a, a mausoleum for the work that I did in the last you know six seven years. So it was my, a nice little box, like a coffin. <laughs> it's in there. This is what I've done. This is this this part of my life. It's boxed in. It's finished. Now we're gonna um, bury it. <laughs> yeah, I was. I thought like I really don't know what I want to do next. You know, I really I was. I'm not sure at all. But I got asked to do a couple of drawings, and um, they seem like it'll be um, interesting, so I didn't want to say no. Some of it was too good to pass up, so I, I couldn't say no. Um, but at, yeah, at the time I was putting the book together, I wasn't sure what I wanted to do after, and I I was thinking maybe I'll just stop drawing. I don't know. Uh, I like to 
um, sort of dare myself sometimes with these ideas. Like, maybe I won't do anything. <laughs> I'll do nothing at all. Um, but then I start to go crazy when I actually um, start thinking like that. And um, mm-hmm. I just, I, I feel like I probably do need something creative to work on, even though there's less and less time as I get older. And um, certainly my teaching, uh, the job I have takes up most of my time. So it's a, a little bit of a struggle to make time for my my own uh, my own drawing, and I I tend to do more illustration than comics just because it's something that I can actually finish when I don't have a lot of time. I know that I can do an illustration in a week or two, even with my job. But you know, to do a, a long comic story, I mean that's that's going to be several years of commitment, and it's very hard for me to work on something like that piecemeal. Um, I'm trying to figure out a way to do that. This, um, like this summer, I have a little bit of time off, and I'm I'm trying to figure out how I can um, get back into doing a comic story, a longer story, working on it in this very piecemeal way. I'll be bit piecemeal way because that's the reality. I was talking I'm to not a, a good multitasker. So. Yeah. I was talking to a cartoonist the other day, and she was telling me about some of the work she was thinking of doing, and one of them was was about objects, and I was really interested in in, in how like you could that work would be something that you could just do, um, without having to worry about time frame, about length, just being able to like find a way to focus on something that doesn't have to be constricted or kind of used in a way, but it just kind of allowing that freedom of just whatever happens. Yeah, it's ref- it's refreshing and healthy sometimes to take breaks, you know, and kind of work on something else like that. I, I mean, it was helpful for me to do it. I, I don't know if I'll make more of those um, c- kind of little objects. Um, I might, but I don't have any major plans for anything right now. I mean, actually, that's not true now that I said that out loud. There is something I wanted to, to make that a... Um, I just haven't um, figured out how I can actually do it. <laughs> so, <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, I'll say one thing, and then I realize, like, that's not true. I, you know, I actually do want to still make some of those. But I'm, I'm, I think lately I've just been trying to figure out how, like, how I'm going to fit everything in and make time for what I would like to do and also have some sense of priority of, like, what should I do first. And that, that's always been very difficult for me is to figure out the priority uh, but I do miss making comics I mean I sometimes I just you know think like I'll never ever make another comic I'm done <laughs> and then then some days I wake up and I think like I can only do comics I don't, I don't know I can't write a novel or you know like I'm terrible I wouldn't be able to do a book of prose you know um, so who knows and your students get you encouraged to draw too you were in one of their anthologies oh yeah that's right I I like the idea Um, specifically there was there was a story that I drew called Mr. Peach that um, originally I mean it was a kind of a longer story and uh, the New Yorker uh, well they only liked the first half of it (laughs) and um, they didn't want like a really uh, busy page so they wanted a shorter page so I, I drew the first half of the story um but I had already started it on my Bristol board, so it was actually structured in this um, much larger page. And um, the second part of it I put into the students' anthology. I thought it'd be funny to have, like, part one of a story is in the New Yorker, you know, read by 1.2 million people or whatever. And then the second part of the story was in this anthology called Line Work, which has, like, 100 copies. So, like, part one and <laughs> part two have a very different, you know, <laughs> venue. So, but I put it in my book, so now any, anybody can read it. But yeah, I like the idea that um, at the time that the second part was in this obscure publication. I think uh, I, I, I like the I like the idea of that. It's kind of two separate worlds. The same work can exist in two different types of worlds. Yeah. <laughs> maybe. Um, thank you for taking the time to chat with me today, Ivan. Um, well, thanks for uh, yeah, thanks for having me on here. So, 
reminder, folks, that Ivan's new book is Aesthetics, MMR, published by Yale University Press. You can also find his other work in Schizo, um, which actually is probably long out of print, I'm presuming. Uh, I'll, actually, the first two are out of print. There's a few copies left of the third one, but issues one through three are com- in their entirety collected in Misery Loves Comedy. And the fourth issue... There are still copies left at okay. Fanographics. I don't know how many. Maybe, hopefully, not a lot. But they, um, there's probably still some floating around in their warehouse. So it's it's still listed on their website. So they, I know they still have them, and there are no plans to uh, reprint that one anytime soon. So, well, then, folks, get a copy before it disappears. <laughs> I like it quite a lot. Can um, I quickly plug my students' anthology. Yes. Yes, yes, um, yes. Which you can, people can order from Quimby's bookstore. So if you just go to, I think it's Quimby's.com or Quimby's Books um, or ChicagoComics.com. Um, and the anthology is called Line Work. And, um, you know, this is like this is like when parents pull out photos of their kids or something. Um, I just feel like I have to tell everyone <laughs> about it. And um, there's some really good work in there. It, 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 there it. is. Yeah, you gave me copies at TCAF, and I was looking through them, and it's quite amazing how there's a lot of different work in it, too. Like, it's it's you're seeing a lot of different interesting folks tapping in different directions, and uh, I think it's a, a really neat look at what's happening right now. I'm hoping uh, everybody in there sticks with it and keeps making comics, so... Well, it sounds like there's a good scene happening in Chicago, in Chicago right now, so... Uh, it's a good oh thing. yeah this is like a mecca now there's there's a lot of young cartoonists too that are kind of you know they have their own little world and I'm not quite privy to that but <laughs> um, which you know I'm just I'd be like the creepy old man in the corner hey guys everybody yeah <laughs> but there's there is a there's actually quite a few like kind of distinct little scenes going on so there's definitely a lot of young people interested in in doing this here and it's um it's a grim enough city that you can stay in most of the time and work on your comics. I, I can't imagine living in New York where there's like a lot of interesting things to do all the time. <laughs> like, like <laughs> why would you stay home and draw? Like, you can just go out and, you know, Chicago is, there's enough stuff where you can get out of the house once in a while, but there's also a lot of reasons to stay in and, and draw, especially in the winter. <laughs> so. I think, I think we have that in Vancouver. Um, Either you are an outdoors person, which means you're not going to do comics, or you're going to be staying inside ten months out of the year because of the rain. So. Yeah, it'd be interesting if there was like some wild man cartoonist that like drew everything outside. You know, <laughs> like I know some like a kids whole different archetype, basically. I actually know some kids like that in Alaska. It'd be interesting <laughs> to see their work. I'll, I'll send you some links. Um, thank you so much, Ivan. I really appreciate this. Well, thank it's been you. Really great to talk to you. Once I had a pretty girl.